Hi, and welcome to a small, medium, at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you stories that heal. Today, our guest is Dean Radin. We're excited about having him on our show today, and I'm going to give you a short version of his amazing bio to share with you. Dr. Dean Radin, MS, PhD, is the chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Associated Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He has degrees in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology. He is an honorary distinguished professor at the Swami Vikanananda University in Bangalore, India, and he's chairman of the board for the neurogenetics biotech startup, <clears throat> Cognogenics. Before joining the IONS research staff in 2001, Dean Radin worked at the AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and at Stanford's SRI International. At SRI International, he worked on a secret classified program investigating psychic espionage for the US government, now commonly known as Stargate. He has given over 600 talks and interviews worldwide and he is author and co-author of over 300 scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, two technical books, and four popular and award-winning books translated into 15 different foreign languages. The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic. He has been interviewed by all of the major broadcast channels in the US, many of the cable channels, and increasingly for streaming services. As of July, 2021, he has participated in some 42 TV and film documentaries and has been a consultant for several feature films with Psy-oriented themes. For nearly four decades now, his research has focused on the nature and capacities of consciousness. His invited talks for industries have included Merck, Google, Johnson & Johnson, and Rabobank. And his government talks have included the US National Academy of Sciences, the US Naval War College, the US Army Special Operations Command, the US Naval Postgraduate School, and DARPA, the Indian Council of Philosophical Research in India. He's on the International Center for Leadership and Governance in Malaysia and the Austrian Davos Connection. In 2017, he was named one of the 100 most inspiring people in the world by the German magazine OOM, O-O-O-M. And in 2021, he was designated a visionary leader by the Visioneers International Network. So let's welcome Dean, Rod Dean Radin to our show today. Hi, Dean. Thank you, Gail. That, that, that listing sounds exhausting. <laughs> I, I had to shorten it from the three pages of information I found on you. I, I just I want to tell you, our, our audience know There's that, enough time to be able to do any of that. Right. I, I don't know how you do all of this. And I just want to tell them that I was privileged to be a subject and, uh, and, 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 and be at the research department at the Institute of Network Sciences back in the early years, and I was so so thrilled that we got to do different experiments and spend time, because from your work that you're doing on the science, for me, on a personal level, I learned about skills that I had that I did not know I had until you had me do them in experiments. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I got to see graphs and things about my physiology that 
proved the things that we were doing were going in the direction that you wanted them to go in. Right. And I'm very grateful for all the information you shared with me and the things that I've learned about how my own self functions. So with that, I wanted to ask you, when, how, and why did you choose this scientific side path? And was there any particular thing that pushed you in that direction? Well, show me a kid who is not interested in the Harry Potter series. Yes. If there are some kids like that, but I would say that they, they have a problem in not being imaginative enough. Mm -hmm. Most kids like fantasy and they, they like to use their imagination. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of times when a, a people become adults, they drop it, right? So the imagination, they, they don't have time or interest to remain imaginative. Uh, but I grew up in an artistic family and my, my first career was as a violinist. Uh, my dad was a sculptor. My brother was heavily involved in drama and the theater. So it was natural for me to, to remain always creative. That was something my, my dad said repeatedly, said the most important thing is to remain creative. So I heard that many, many times. Uh, but I've, I've, at the same time, I must have agreed with that because otherwise, you know, just because your dad says something doesn't mean you're gonna do it. Uh, so I had read a lot of science fiction and fairy tales and mythology, all of which included aspects of psychic phenomena. So I became interested in the idea of, is any of that stuff real? Cause I didn't have those experiences. In fact, I didn't know anybody who did have those experiences. It wasn't discussed in her family at all. Did you have any favorite specific books that have kept with you since childhood? Like I love the Chronicles of Narnia and I still love that today. For me, the ones that I, I kept paying attention to was science fiction. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, among the, the Brothers Grimm and all of those fairy tales as well. Uh, I don't think I kept those books. So I think we probably got those in the library, but many of the science fiction books I, I kept. So, and it's all about imagination. Right, it's stimulating and exciting. So when I started reading about stories of psychic phenomena, whether it was in a story or whether it was something that was supposedly real, I think it was just natural to, to ask, could that really be real? Is, are these kinds of phenomena actually real? So I, at some point in probably uh, elementary school, I, I ran across the discipline of parapsychology, which is, the scientific study of these kinds of phenomena. And I learned to my delight that you could use the tools of science to investigate these things. Mm -hmm. So I've always been interested in science as well. And so I now found that the tools I was learning in a scientific career were completely applicable to study things like telepathy and precognition and so on. And I learned about the literature and I met other people who are doing similar kinds of studies. And I felt that who would not be interested in this if they had the opportunity? In fact, after I went to SRI International, I went back to Bell Labs for about six months until I, got, until I went to Princeton. But I, I was able to give a talk to, uh, about my experiences, the things I could talk about at SRI to an, an audience at Bell Labs. So what they did is once a month, they would usually get an outside speaker come in and then they would, they would 
have anybody who wished to come could come to this lecture. Well, this time the, the audience was basically everyone at this facility. So there it would hold typically around 350 people, but there's at least 500 people in the audience because I was talking about psychic phenomena and I knew most of the people there anyway, because I had been working there for years. So at one point I asked, given the unusual nature of what I'm talking about, science and psychic phenomena, how many of you in the audience, these are all technical people, some scientists, some engineers and so on, how many of you would like to work on these kinds of topics if it was part of your job, if you were allowed to do that? Every single one of them raised their hand. Wow. Everyone finds this fascinating everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are many reasons why not that many people are working on it, but nevertheless, uh, a lot of people, especially within the academic community and scientists and engineers, their curiosity is still completely intact, but realism gets in the way like your job gets in the way. And so they don't have the time to look into it. But if they did, and it was part of their job, lots of people would do this. So the only difference from, from what I did versus many other people was I took many, many risks along the way to find the few, the handful of jobs around the world where you could do this kind of work. So I moved around to different labs and, and eventually landed at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, where I've been since 2001. So has in those years from when you were first thinking about this until now, uh, you're one of the top researchers in this field that stuck with it, like you said, has there been other, um, has there been other advancements in science where they're starting to have more respect and acknowledgement for the study of this field? Has things changed at all? No, it's, it's still Rodney Dangerfield. We, no. we get no respect. Oh. <laughs> it's not quite as bad as that because uh, there are always some people who are prominent in conventional fields who are a little bit more outspoken about their interest because mm -hmm. they don't care because they've already made a name in their, their field already. Uh, so you get some support from them. In my case, like in my most recent book, I have two Nobel laureates and former director at the National Science Foundation and a bunch of other people like that who are willing to endorse my book because they're interested in these things. And you know they don't, they don't care what other people think. And but, we're talking about the real magic, correct? Right. So I would say uh, the nature of the evidence if, if you go, go back to around 1920 or so, when J.B. Ryan started to do systematic tests using more modern methods, mm -hmm. from there until now, if you were able to plot acceptance within science, it goes through fads and you know just like anything else does, the periods of high interest and periods of low interest. So I would say that it, it progressively increased from around 1920 to the Second World War, and then people had no patience to do anything other than complete pragmatism. So their interest dropped off. And after the war, it continually increased up to about 1970. So this was the psychedelic period. Uh, there were a number of many more labs then, many more people interested, uh, many more publications appearing. And then there was a retraction from all of the, the psychedelics. So the 1980s, 90s, even beginning of the 2000s, there was another drop 
-hmm. how it's picked up again. And again, it's going up each time. It doesn't go all the way down to the bottom. It's like, you know, like a staircase. So the trend is continually towards more and more acceptance, but there are periods where it, it, it declines for a while, interest declines. Does mainstream media affect that a lot? Like I know recently there's been things in mainstream media about uncovering or declassifying UFO information. Has that, is that one of the areas where it gets affected because they don't speak about this sort of thing in the public? Well, mainstream media follows mainstream science. Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, uh, for the UFOs, it is probably related to uh, to many, many decades of people trying to loosen up how society thinks about this. And this has already happened in many other countries, like the UFO files in the UK and other countries are open, right? Okay. It's out there. It's been, the US has been much farther behind on this. And so because of the efforts of a lot of people to to get this out there, uh, the topic of UFOs is finally being acknowledged as a thing. Now, one of the reasons it's not going far and fast is because as best as I can tell, nobody knows what it means. There's stuff happening, but it's difficult to study and we don't know yet what, if, what it means. By contrast, if you look at, at uh, research on psychic phenomena, this is now about 120, 140 years old. Uh, and using the tools of science, we can gain confidence about the existence of these kinds of things. And I think we're right on the cusp of getting theories which are beginning to provide explanations. So the, the data is clear there these phenomena exist. The second question that makes people feel more comfortable about it is, well, how, did, how do you explain that? How is that possible? So as I said, I think uh, things have changed as a result of a broader acceptance of the of phenomena in quantum mechanics, because what quantum mechanics has done is allowed aspects of the physical world to be compatible with psychic phenomena, primarily the notion of non-locality. So we know that, that at deep levels, the physical world is non-local, we have pretty good evidence that the mind is, is able to access that non-locality. That's why things like clairvoyance and precognition work, maybe telepathy too. Uh, and so we're, we're not completely there yet, but I think I can see a pathway to eventually we'll actually have a more reasonable explanation from, from a physical perspective, except that people think of physical explanations most, unless they're a quantum mechanic, they're thinking of classical ways of thinking about the physical world. And that's, at this point, kind of an old fashioned way of thinking of how the world works. Right, and also um, I'm wondering about, once we discussed about how, I think you did a group, a lot of research on the fact that we also have not just the brain in our head, but we also have a brain in our gut or not exactly a brain, but yeah. There's something going on. Yeah, it's called the second brain sometimes. Yes, and what, can you explain that a little bit to our listeners? Well, we have certain kinds of neurons in the brain, but we have the same kind of neurons elsewhere in the body. Mm -hmm. So the the second highest density of of these kinds of neurons, astrocytes, are in the stomach. 
And one of the reasons is that uh, just from an evolutionary point of view, the process of digesting food is really, really complicated. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of things that have to work correctly to make it happen. So there's intelligence in the gut, which is involved in getting nutrition out of food and then getting rid of the waste and all the, re all the rest of it, which you could, you could have a portion of the brain taking care of that. But it, it somehow evolution said, well, no, let's, let's keep these two things separate for the sake of efficiency. And we don't need to be aware of digestion. And so we'll have the second brain take care of that. And meanwhile, the brain that's in here, these astrocytes, well, they'll, they'll take care of things like uh, perception and make sure that, we, that the organism remains alive and can find more food and do all the other things that allows us to, uh, to be human, basically. Well, we always hear the term, trust your gut. And, I, I, and I'm thinking it's something that people should really hear and, and remind themselves of, because I think sometimes information comes that you feel there before you actually determine in your brain what is going on. Right. Yeah. So we did an experiment one time where we looked at uh, the electrogastrogram which is the electrical activity of the gut. It's very similar to measuring the electroencephalogram. So you put, you put electrodes over the head, you see the electrical activity. Well, you put electrodes over the gut and you can see signals that look very much like an EEG. They're just much, much slower. They're like 30 seconds to do one cycle. Where here, of course, you're running it at multi, probably between one and maybe 60 hertz. So the stomach is quite slow. So we, uh, the way we did is we separated people, we recorded the electrogastrogram of a person in our shielded room, which you're familiar with. Yes. Uh, and then at a distance, we had somebody look at video clips that had different levels of emotion. And it, while they were looking at that, at the video clip, they also saw a picture of the person's face inside the shielded room. And the idea was that if you're looking partially looking at the person in the room, but you're experiencing an emotion which is evoked by the, the video, that you might have different responses in the gut. Like if you're looking at a, a dangerous kind of video, you might see the gut seizing up a little bit, you know, like clenching. And if you're seeing a picture of food, it might re respond differently. If you see something like a placid lake, there's no emotional response, there would be no response in the gut. Well, that's more or less what we found. Does the... Um... Is the gut similar to the brain? I know we did an experiment once about looking at seeing whether the body can sense danger before the photo comes up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Did the gut have the same type of reaction? Well, we, we didn't try that. And the reason is that uh, because the gut responds so slowly, mm -hmm. that usually in the experiment you're talking about, you would just see an image for like five seconds. And you might have a response in the gut, but we'd have to have the, the it would be such a long experiment because you'd have to wait like a minute or two mm -hmm. minutes just to, for the gut to respond. So we, we haven't tried it, but I would imagine it actually does respond. That's for the reasons that you said that oftentimes people feel the visceral effect in their gut itself. Mm -hmm. It's like a physical feel, it is a physical feeling in there. Sure it is, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I want to just move on to something that we discussed once years ago, and it's that you had taken up the practice of meditation. That's quite a big coffee cup you've got there. 
It's a big, big cup. It looks bigger than it actually is because the camera distorts it, but yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh, just like my nose. <laughs> so I'm curious because I think you and I have similar backgrounds where we weren't raised with any particular religious uh, information being shoved in us or forced on us or required of us. Yeah. So I think that led us to be a little bit more um, open-minded. And um, I've done experiences with meditation myself, but I've never been able to be consistent and disciplined the way you are. And I've had it to be very helpful uh, experiences in when I'm doing meditation. And I'm wondering what, how do you meditate every day? And do you do this for your physical, mental, for your work? Or how has it affected your life in adding meditation into your life, which I consider sort of on a spiritual path? Well, I first learned to meditate in 1970. Mm -hmm. So that's 50 years already uh, as part of uh, a TM practice. So the Transcendental Meditation, because they're on many campuses, maybe they still are. Right. So I, I learned that method. Uh, and then on and off since that time for 50 years, I would tried many different methods. Uh, partially just out of curiosity to see which ones work better for me and so on. But for the, the last uh, maybe 10 years or so, I primarily have done the practice called Vipassana. So that, That's the one I do. Yeah. Yes. So it, it basically uh, clearing the cobwebs out of your head and trying to just quiet the mind. And the reason I do that, and the reason I've always done it actually, is because I, I'm wired tight. Yes. I, I have high anxiety and it can run away with itself. So I, I do it and it's a daily practice just to remain calm. Mm -hmm. And so if something else happens, that, that's fine. But really, it's, it's about mental and physical health. I found that the meditation, I, I also checked out different different ones. I didn't do the transcendental, but I had checked out Zen and uh, other meditations. And the Vipassana was the one that felt the closest to home for me because mm -hmm. all you were doing was following your breath. Right. You take your breath with you everywhere you go. So you can, <laughs> you can meditate anywhere you like if you want, in an airport or in a chair or... You're not looking at an object specifically. You're just following the breath, rising and falling. Right. And um, I, I was curious because I think there were things that I read about when you worked with people who were meditators, they did seem to have better results in experiments. Is that is that also still true? Yeah, yeah. And our colleagues around the world have done similar studies with meditators. And I would say in general, they do better than people who don't have meditative practice. Uh, certainly the lore within meditation is that the deeper you get in contact with your, uh, the deep parts of your mind, which you might think of as unconscious or pre-conscious, uh, you're getting closer to the source of where these psychic effects come from in the first place. And so my book, Supernormal, was about the yogic tradition, which is part of that tradition that sure. uh, talks about, yes, talks about the siddhis, the, the Sanskrit term meaning attainments or perfections, the different, it's a, there are many ways to, uh, to translate it. But the idea is that it was well known when that book was written at least 2000 years ago, maybe more, uh, 
that if you begin to meditate, you will spontaneously start to have psychic experiences uh, from elementary ones to highly advanced experiences. And the other thing about, I'm talking about the Yoga Sutras, that that book written by Patanjali way back when uh, has an, an entire, not a chapter, but it's four, four little books. So one of those little books is on how to develop psychic experiences. And, and all kinds of things that some of which we don't see today very much like invisibility and super strength and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, the fact that it was written in a matter of fact way, mm -hmm. and we we're able to test that some of the cities exist, like some of them are, were simple telepathy and some were simple clairvoyance. Well, it seems very odd then for them to be talking about those particular kinds of skills and then go on to say, oh, and by the way, if you do this practice, you can levitate. If you do this practice, you're as heavy as an elephant, you know, in the same, in the same breath as you, you can be telepathic. So we, I think we tend not to see those, those uh, unusual powers today because people don't have the time or inclination to spend the rest of their entire life in meditation to be able to produce those. And in addition, you almost certainly need special talent. Mm -hmm. So some people are very talented in meditation. They can get to these deep states. Others can try forever and they'll never get there. So I think the, the really strong cities, the powers uh, that, that we would find remarkable were, were rare even at that time, but they did exist. So when you were traveling in India and speaking there, did you come across any particular, did you see any particular uh, acts of unusual nature like this, of anything of levitations, or is this pretty much something that has not been seen for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years? No, I didn't see anybody do that, but I did see many examples of supernormal ability uh, in, the, in the form of uh, the way that the, the cars would go in traffic. Mm -hmm. So the traffic is so dense and continuous, and all different kinds from uh, an entire family on a scooter, to buses, to cars, to you name it, rickshaws, all at the same time with oxen or cows in the roadway and somehow flowing, just continually flowing. Uh, and, and we also found that uh, traffic lights were mere suggestions that uh, sometimes people followed it and sometimes they didn't follow it. <laughs> so. <laughs> If you're, you're, as a Westerner, used to people actually following traffic laws, it was actually quite frightening mm -hmm. because the giant cacophony and total chaos, but somehow it works. And we, we learned afterwards that the only reason that there are accidents is because somebody hesitates. Oh. So if, if you hesitate for a moment, the flow is interrupted and there's gigantic accidents that happen. So, so it's almost like they're all on the same, they're on the same wavelength. They're all flowing in the same form together and nobody needs to upset the apple cart or the ox cart by hesitating or having a thought. Yeah, even <laughs> when there's a couple of ox in the road, they somehow, it all just flows right around them. It's, it's amazing. It's, and for, for the people living there, this is a normal way of life, but for a Westerner coming from the United States with freeways and stop signs and traffic being controlled, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. Yeah, it's, it's a huge coordination task that is really a collective 
I can't, it, no individual could figure out how to do it. It's a collective agreement somehow. And most of the time it works pretty good. Well, I have to say I was exposed to meditation when I was seven in 1962, when we lived in a vegan commune and one of the gentlemen li living with us was a Hindu monk who wore brown, brown, brown robes and brown beads and meditated all the time. And I, until I started thinking about it, I realized he was actually my first exposure to, I'd already had dreams and, you know, sort of unusual uh, knowingnesses of things in my family. And I had done astral travel then, traveling around out of my body, but it was just something I thought was part of who I was. But with him, he showed me things I didn't realize till later, like card reading. He would sit down with me with a deck of cards and have me practice with him where I would hold the cards in my hand. His name was Swami of Saraswati. And I'd say to him, he'd say to me, okay, Gail, pick a card. And I would pick the card and he'd always tell me what that card was. He was very, you know, so I think that was really my first like exposure to that kind of like the idea that you could do something with a card or uh, read another person's mind in that way, mm -hmm. which brings me to, I had to bring up the fact that you have a chapter in Supernormal on telepathy. And it's an experiment we did that our listeners maybe don't know anything about called the Gonsfield experiment. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the Gonsfield experiment is and how it's one of the accepted experiments in the scientific community. Is that correct? Uh, more or less. Oh. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a very solid experiment with very strong results. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that most people within the mainstream science don't even know that it exists. Of, of those who do know that it exists, I would say many are quite impressed about it. So could you explain what actually goes on? What is that experiment? Well, so I, I think the reason you brought it up is because you you participated in, in one session and I use That's that in the book as a way of describing what it's like. The funny thing about that is that I had heard about the Gonsfield for years and just kept hearing the word, the Gonsfield, the Gonsfield. And I just always wanted to be in that experiment. So when I finally got to, to, to be in the experiment with you and then get to read about it in Supernormal, it felt like, was that the excitement I was feeling earlier on when I kept saying, I wanna be in this specifically this one. And also because I feel one of my uh, stronger things is that I've always felt like I pick up people's thoughts or that I'm reading their mind, but it really wasn't until we did this experiment together that I saw it in actual, you know, right there in front of me happening and with proof. And for me, it was, an, I'm very grateful for that experiment because it was a very validating experience for me. And for the other person in the experience who had never had anything psychic ever happen in their life, it was an eye opener for him. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I just was hoping we could just describe to the, 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 the mainstream listeners here about what a Gonsfield experiment is. Okay, so the, the actual word is Gonsfeld because Gonsfeld. it's a German word and it means whole field. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it entails uh, sitting in a, a, a comfortable reclining chair or at least a comfortable chair, uh, wearing headphones that play white noise. So all you can hear is a hissing sound 
And then over each eye, you put a half of a ping pong ball. And then uh, you shine a red light. Do you have a picture of it? Yes. Yeah. No, and I actually accidentally found this at a remote, uh, no, it was a parapsychological conference. And I was, uh, I ran into Paul Smith and he told me I'm selling my new book, this, this, this particular book. Yeah. And I took the book home and I started, I went in, in, in the evening because I was going back to the conference in the morning. And I just decided to open it to any random page to see what it would tell me. And when I opened up the random page, it was actually me. <laughs> Yeah, there you then, are. There I was with the, I'll have you describe it, uh, doing that particular experiment. And he said, oh, I didn't know that was you, Gail. He said, because I couldn't see your face. He said, I would have put your name in the book had I known that that was you. He said, I got that from Dean. Yeah. And so anyways, yeah, so that, that, funny picture, coincidence. that picture shows that we, we put the ping pong ball, a half a ball over your eye and then tape it in place. So it stays there. And then you keep your eyes open and the red light is shining so you can't see anything anywhere. It all looks pink. Mm-hmm. So you imagine that if you're in that state, as you know, you're seeing, you only see pink everywhere. Your eyes are open. You can't hear anything. You're in a comfy chair. And after a few minutes, you begin to uh, hallucinate, basically. You begin to see images. And this is intentional. This is what the, this Gansfeld state is designed to do to let your mind run free, like idle, because there's no stimulus, no other stimulus coming in. So that's thought to be uh, conducive to being more sensitive to telepathic impressions and any kind of psychic impression actually. So you're put into that state as the receiver at the, in a distance, there is a sender. A sender is given one image, which is typically an image that is selected out of a large pool of images uh, and each pool is made up of groups of four images and each of the four is very different from each other. So first a random decision is made to pick a pool and then a random decision is made of which of the four to actually be used as a target. So uh, the, in that case, I think I was the experimenter. I ended up choosing the target. I gave it to the sender, his name was Tom. And the instructions for Tom was mentally send this to Gail, who's in the basement of nearby, but in a shielded room. So to help Tom do that, we had a a one-way audio link so that Tom could hear anything that you said through, in this case, was just a baby monitor. Mm -hmm. So he was listening to what you said in the baby monitor and was able to adjust his sending strategy to help you get what he was trying to mentally send. So uh, in in that case, the randomly selected picture was a picture of a a pyramid from Egypt. And of course, you didn't know that. And he didn't know in advance what the image was going to be. In fact, I didn't even know what the image was going to be because we selected it at random. And so you said, as a report in that book and other books, that you said a series of things over a period of about 20 minutes, uh, a total of maybe 30 things that you said, 30 sentences or so. And then at the end of the ascending period, uh, we, we stop Tom, we uh, have an assistant who takes you out of the Gonsfeld condition and then plays back what you said. So you, you could re- remind yourself what you were saying. And then you're shown four images, one of which Tom was sending and three decoys, which were the other targets in the pool. 
And your job was simply to select which one of the four was the one that Tom was sending. So you thought about it for a while, but uh, I think you very quickly came up with the idea that the only one that really matched your experiences was the pyramid. And that was the, that was the correct target. Well, there was a little extra, there was something else that happened in that experiment that I never knew about till a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. And I think I shared it with you, but I'm not sure if I did or not. Um, I was being filmed for the documentary um, unveiling the paranormal, or I can't remember, for the NHK for, in, for Japan. Mm -hmm. And when they came out here, they wanted to meet Tom because they had read your piece in Supernormal. Mm -hmm. And Tom had never had anything psychic ever happen in his life. He had no anything psychic experiences to ever speak of. So this was a whole new uh, experience for him being in an experiment. And so he didn't realize to mention, but that for me, I'd get the information in the first five minutes or a few minutes. And then after it, even though I have to be there for 20 minutes, I sort of rattle on, but I'm really, I've done, I'm done with the other stuff. And now what other stuff can I tell you about? Well, it turns out he's being interviewed and they say to him, so she did describe the target you were looking at. He said, yeah. He said, and then uh, Dean was working in his office and I was sitting at the computer. And all of a sudden she started describing everything I was looking at in his office. And I had never known this. <laughs> and it was just such a comforting feeling of knowing that I truly was looking through someone else's eyes and seeing what they were seeing. But it didn't occur to him to tell you or I about this because he just figured the pyramid was all we were looking for. So he only happened to mention it when he was being filmed by these filmmakers. So yeah. that was when we discovered it. <laughs> yeah, I did not know that. I, oh, I didn't know if you knew. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I didn't know that. Uh, and so, you know, it was like a couple of years after that. That was, that was in 2010 and the filming was a few years later. So <laughs> anyways, I found that a very funny anomaly or whatever the word is. Yeah, and that, that's consistent with what I've heard from, uh, from really talented remote viewers that mm -hmm. they get all of the information in a flash. It's a flash. Like, yeah. And then all of the rest of it, the sessions, whatever, they're, you know, it's like, why even bother? I start making things up. It's what they call yeah. the analytical overlay thing or, yeah. you know, and if I just go with what comes right away in the first minute, th that's where it's at. That's my best information. Right. Right. Yes. So a lot of people have telepathy. I And, and a lot of people have I think there's like this thing where people think that this is some sort of abilities. I mean, not everyone's going to be a classical violinist and accomplish what you did, but people can pick up and learn how to play a violin. And I feel that this is the same with telepathy and psychic uh, experiences that some people seem to avoid this saying that, oh no, that doesn't ever happen to me. And I think you spoke about if you could speak about now about when you were looking for people who don't have psychic experiences, mm -hmm. what was your responses with that? It's not easy to find those people. Mm -hmm. so this, this is related to a, a study we're looking at uh, whether people with psychic talent have a genetic trait. Is, it, is this the basis of this genetics? So we recruited 
people from around the world who were psychic and came from psychic families and then got their DNA. And then to provide a match control, we had to find people of the same age, gender, and race who didn't never reported anything psychic and never, not from anybody in their family either. Well, it was much more difficult to find those controls than it was to find people who had at least some psychic abilities and other people in their family had some psychics happen. Uh, so it is the, the majority of people fall into a class where they, they have these things happen. Um, maybe not as much as uh, somebody who's highly talented at it, but they have some kind of experiences and it's quite unusual. There's a minority who never have any of these experiences at all. So you think back on my own case, when I was growing up, we, we never talked about it. I don't actually remember any kind of experiences like that. But after I did start reading about it and doing experiments, I've had probably the average number of various kinds of psychic things happen. And the more I think about it, the more I imagine that, that it's possible, the more it happens. So in some cases, the reason why people don't have anything happening is that they just never think about it. They don't, they don't talk about it. They just, their mind is not going there. Uh, but nevertheless, when we did find the controls as compared to the, the talented people, or at least genetically inherited talents, we did find a genetic difference. Mm -hmm. So we're continuing that study to have a larger pool of people to work with. And we, we're guessing at this point that what we found is just one of a number of different biomarkers that will help distinguish between people like yourself who are just naturally talented versus people who don't have any talent at all. Um, I found that when I've been asking, when I've had different people, when I was Dr. Gale for a little while and I was answering uh, people's um, they'd have a psychic experience and they would feel very disturbed or they needed to speak to someone. And I was more than happy to write and contact them about it. But in each one, I would always ask them exactly that. Is there anyone in your family that had dreams or that would tell you something was gonna happen or that had these, or did you find that? And everyone would forget. And then as they thought about it, they said, wait a minute, my grandmother was like that or mm. my aunt was like that. But in the family story, for some reason, they they stopped saying those stories. They didn't like honor that the person was doing these things. All yeah. they did was sort of like push it away. And when they started to, uh, like in this one particular one I'm thinking about, she was very oriented to the church. And so she couldn't understand why this hairbrush was moving around in this room where her child was. And what was the significance? Why was this happening to her? This can't be right. And then she went to the church and they were going to do whatever and nothing was working. And when we spoke, I said to her, well, tell me about the brush. And it turns out it had been the grandmother's brush. And this child was born when the grandmother had just died, was named after the grandmother. And all the grandmother was trying to do, which is what I said to the woman, is she's just trying to make some sort of a spiritual contact with her little granddaughter here, there's nothing to be afraid of. And uh, just let, let them just feel welcoming and just say, it's okay. And let your child have the experience. And it gave the woman tremendous relief. Mm. And that was all she needed to hear. And it let her go on with her, every, her regular everyday life after that. Mm -hmm. But I think that a lot of families have not passed on the information about 
you know, where some of this might have come from in their lineage. And right. every single one, when I would talk to them, they would remember, oh, yes, there was that. But it hadn't been kept up in the family information. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother always spoke to the dead. That was her thing. And she'd wake up and tell you who she visited that night in her in, in her bedroom and which relative had died that come to her. And she would tell you all about it. And for her, it was a very comfortable. So when I was growing up, I thought it was a normal thing mm -hmm. that you could just talk to your dead relatives and that was fine. But it really wasn't. If you told that to other people, they said your grandmother's crazy. <laughs> well, and, and, and as you probably know, that people who are naturally psychic learn that in, in the great world out there, that a lot of people are quite frightened about these things, and so they don't want to hear it. Well, that's why it brought me such joy to meet up with you and Russell Targ and being able to develop more of these and work on these experiments with you, because that's what I had dealt with. And, um, you know, your family makes fun of you. My sisters made fun of me, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. But then when I stopped giving them information, all of a sudden my sister said, well, I'm pregnant and you haven't told me if I'm having a boy or a girl yet. <laughs> so there was a part of them that actually wanted some of these things. And I, I said to her, well, I'll ask for a dream. So I asked for a dream. And that night, the, I always get my information on a telephone. If it's in the dream, it comes on a telephone. I know it's the factual information. Hmm. And because I think it's my way of communicating. Also, I do very well on the phone with people. And um, so the phone message came, it's a girl, eight pounds, six ounces. So I hung up in the dream. And the next morning I called her and I said, well, the dream told me it's a girl, eight pounds, six ounces. And I called this dream on request because I'd never asked for a specific dream. Mm -hmm. And so three weeks later she gave birth and it was a cesarean. And uh, the doctor looked at her and said, it's a girl, eight pounds, six ounces. And she called me up, her and her husband, and she said, we'll never doubt you again. <laughs> so sometimes when you have the actual interaction directly like that with the person, it will help to change their thought. And often I find the most skeptical persons, like with remote viewing, when you sit around my house and I bring out that little remote viewing kit that we got at one of the shows, and it has the 150 photos, the person who did the best was the one that was the most skeptical, who didn't believe mm -hmm. in any of these sort of things. His drawing was perfect. Mm -hmm. So it was a way to, and yet still, even when they do it and you show it to them, they still think, oh, it was a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad you're out there showing these things. I, I see how we're doing. Oh, we only have 15 minutes left. So I wanted to ask a couple of quickie questions, okay? Mm -hmm. I was going to bring up stuff about real magic, but I don't think we have enough time, but I do recommend that people get that book and read it. It's fabulous. You're working on a sci-fi series for TV, and I was wondering if this was something you had as one of your dreams while growing up and you were reading sci-fi books. Did you ever imagine at that time or plant a seed anywhere that someday you would be participating in television shows about science sci-fi? Uh, I don't think so, not as a child. Mm -hmm. uh, it's more as an adult after watching dozens of sci-fi shows. And in particular, what sparked my interest was that uh, most shows involving psychic phenomena devolve into horror. And I don't, 
I don't think that's necessary. It's not, in the, it's not the way it should be portrayed because it only cements in the public's mind that there's things to be afraid of. So I wanted to write a story with, where the psychic component was important and not, not horror. And so that's, that's what the, the origin of the story was about. And so uh, we've, we've written a, a program that would be five seasons with six episodes per season. And, wow. and so that in order to finish the long story arc, you need the entire thing, all 30, or 30 hourly episodes. So it's 30 hour series. Uh, we, we finished the pilot, the pilot's script is finished. The series Bible is finished, which it tells how each episode is and you know the whole plot. Uh, so I can't say who, but a, a major celebrity is interested in participating. So we're uh, slightly revising our original script to put the protagonist in that person's voice. You know, because you, you know how the, the actor is. And so we're customizing it so that the, that actor would become the, the main character in, in the show. Is there a working title yet for the show or is that still? Unwrapped? Well, originally we we're gonna call it Real Magic, but it turns out there's a whole bunch of things already called Real Magic, uh -huh. you know, movies and whatever. So we, we call, we're calling it now PsyGene, P-S-I gene, because it actually does involve the genetics of psychic ability. In fact, the story is a projection of the research that we're currently doing now on the genetics of psychic ability. So it's like a lot of science fiction, you have a kernel, which is actually the truth. And then you project, well, what if something happens? And that's what the story is about. I have to say, that's been my experience with sci-fi is that I got too scared. And so I don't like to watch the scary things because then yeah. it gets into my dreams and stuff. And I'm just, I don't like horror films. I don't watch any of that. But that what I did love in some of the sci-fi, the ones, the more gentler ones, was that a lot of them were showing the future of what was going to happen. I think, was it Roddenberry or what, where things that they did in their shows actually became technical things later that were made or actually yeah. became things. So often in fantasy and science fiction, truth is in there. It just was a different way of having it come out. But with science fiction, some of it feels precognitive to me yeah. that these, these writers were really seeing the future. Yeah. So... I think the best science fiction, the one, the science fiction that I like is exactly in that domain. Mm -hmm. it, it's a projection of where we are uh, and not just a space opera. So a lot of science fiction, the way we see it in, in, in movies in particular, it's space opera. It's, it's, uh, it's like a soap opera put in space, mm -hmm. right? And it's so a lot of times movies are about relationships between people or between people and something else about the human relationship issue, which is important in order to kind of pull you into the story. But then sometimes they forget. So, there's, you know, science fiction could go into two ways. One way, it's all about, it's a thriller that's all about machines and people and war, right? Mm -hmm. it's, so it's war in space. Right. The other one is that it's, it's a soap opera in space. So you don't need the space at all. It could have been anywhere. Mm -hmm. so I like it's like the middle road where the science is important. The, the relationships are important. All of that is important too, but it stays in the middle and does not dive into horror. It dives into something which is more aspirational. And so 
some of the scientific experiments and research you're doing will be fused into this show. So that yep. will be a combination of actual fact and uh, story. Yeah. I'm very excited for that. I'm very happy for you. I, I, I think it's, uh, with all the projects you do, this seems like a really fun, a really fun project to be working on. This is very different than the usual work that I do. And uh, it requires being completely creative along the way. Like anytime you write a story, it's purely imagination. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yes. And I'm, so I'm glad you're having fun because I can't imagine you hardly sleep because of how much you produce and what you do. <laughs> so I'm going to ask one last question since we only have a few minutes left about what is the most exciting scientific research you're doing today that you would want to share? I know you have many, many projects, but is there one that's your, you know, your favorite? Well, I, my favorite is always the last thing I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the, the last experiment that we did involved uh, was a, a mind matter interaction experiment, psychokinetic experiment, where the target uh, was a type of matter which had never been used before in these experiments. It was entangled photons. Mm -hmm. So many previous experiments, and, and you've participated in some of these too, we, where we use things like photons as the target. So it's a quantum object, except that while the mind element is non-local, you know, you're influencing something at a distance, the targets have always been local. It's a photon, it's a thing, it's a random number generator, it's something, but it's a local. Well, this target was entangled photons, which is a non-local phenomenon. That's the, basically the, the definition of non-local that you have things separated, but they're not really separate. Mm -hmm. So our idea was, could the mind modulate the strength of entanglement? Because in, entangled photons have very, have, it's a whole range of different kinds of entanglement strength, all the way from zero, where it's now a classical particles, uh, up to a known maximum. So you, entanglement, according to quantum mechanics, is not infinite. You, you actually have an upper limit to the degree to which you can entangle things. And so we wanted to find out, first of all, can the mind modulate entanglement? And second, could it modulate it above the known limits? Because if you could, it would mean that quantum mechanics is not complete. Mm -hmm. You'd need some kind of super quantum mechanics in order to account for that. So both of the questions then become really interesting because, uh, first of all, we'd never done it before. We didn't know. But secondly, that it would pro might provide hints about how this stuff works. So after running many dozens of experiments, I'm convinced that there are real, real phenomena going on. But I'm as curious as anybody else on how do we begin to get a scientific grasp on why this stuff works? How does it work? Well, I think quantum mechanics is giving us hints that it is somewhere in there, something about those phenomena. So of, of the various experiments that I'm, I have on the drawing board now, most of them are related in one way or another to look at what are the underlying mechanisms by which these things actually work. Mm -hmm. So like, one of the other experiments that I have on the drawing board is similar to what I've done with the double slit uh, apparatus, but in a much, much simpler way. So I just want to mention that uh, you were a participant in one of the double slit experiments, which involves uh, trying to mentally influence uh, what is happening in that kind of apparatus, which is a way of testing uh, the, 
what is the role of the mind and the collapse of the wave function, more or less. And so the first time you did that experiment, you were in their shielded room and the device was in the room and uh, the, the computer was asking you to now concentrate on the system in which you get feedback and then you would relax and withdraw your mind and you were doing it and you weren't getting very good results. And if you recall, what, what happened was you were getting angrier and angrier at yourself because it wasn't working too good. And finally, you came out with uh, quite a loud expletive, which I will not repeat, uh, and all of the power in the laboratory went out. It just like a big power hit. And of course, you know, the session was ruined because we didn't get any data, but all the lights were out, the computers were out, everything was out. Later, we learned that all of the power in the entire county, Sonoma County, had gone out. Just at that time, you said something, everything stopped the entire county. So uh, from an experimental point of view, I thought, well, th th that's good. You know, it's, we're talking about a psychokinetic effect, but I didn't want you to throw all the power out in the entire county. <laughs> I have to say that the, what, ex what experience I had then was that my dad had passed away and I had been taking care of him and I, it took a year to recover. And I hadn't felt anything psychic during that time. So I thought I was never going to have anything psychic again. And when you invited me into the um, lab, I thought, no, I don't think I'll be able to do anything for him. Nothing works for me anymore. And my husband, David, said, I know you already. Just go and something will happen. Just go and do it. But I went in there with the most feelings of like, I'm only going to fail, which is what I did in the first uh, session. So then when I got the idea, I said, Let, yeah, let's do the next session. And I felt the intensity of my dad and all of the stuff and excuse my language, but I said, I'm going to blow this fucking thing up. And the second I said that all the lights went out, yeah. but I only thought they went out in our Faraday cage, which is very dark when it goes out in there. Yeah. And I was going, oh my God, this is new equipment. He paid thousands of dollars for this and now I've damaged it. <laughs> So when you open the door, all I kept thinking was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it came back on, you touched some things and it all worked again. And I was very happy. And then I said, you know what? I got my mojo back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was a very interesting moment. I learned, you always teach me things, Dean. And I am so grateful for participating in whatever we've done and how much I've learned. And I know we have to go now. But in closing, at the end of this talk, what I would like to find out is for any of our listeners out there, some of them may be experienced in psychic phenomena. They might have heard you, might have seen the books. Everything will be on our site for them to be able to see the web links and to go there. But I was wondering if personally, if there were any online or anything that you might want to suggest for any listeners who'd be able to go and work on, you know, practicing their skills or learning about different things, or even just maybe they're starting from the beginning. Well, so uh, the site uh, gotsci.org has mm -hmm. been running since the year 2000. So we've, it's, it hasn't stopped basically. And we're in the process of making a new version of it that'll be a little bit faster and more like a modern uh, interface. Uh, so that, that will be out probably within a month or two oh, from great. when we're speaking now. So. Uh, the, the other one still exists. If you go to gotside.org, it'll work. But at some point, we're going to uh, switch over to a, a new version of it that'll be faster and easier to use. 
And so that's what I would recommend. Otherwise, we, we always have other experiments that are on the drawing board and occasionally that will then go recruiting for people to do these new experiments. And I, so I have two of them that are in the process of being designed right now. Wonderful. So, and you've collected a lot of data over the years on the GOTSAI. Yep. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. It's I, I, Anyone who's listening, I highly encourage you to go onto that site because it's a very entertaining and fun way of learning about abilities that you know you have. Right. You just haven't, you know, worked on them. <laughs> so GOTSAI, G-O-T-P-S-I.org. That's based on the, on the old advertisement, Got Milk. Well, mm -hmm. this is Got, got Sai. Right. Well, you always have had a fabulous uh, sense of humor. And I've enjoyed all the talks I've attended. I especially love the one you did at the parapsychology when you did it um, with the green eggs and ham theme and you wore, wore Dr. Seuss hat. <laughs> so I think you bring humor and um, that's such an important thing into science. And I wanna thank you so much for being here today. I know that taking an hour out for you is a lot and I really appreciate having you here. And I, I hope we get to have another chat again sometime soon. And uh, I'll keep following your work and I'm looking forward to the updated GATSAI. I hope uh, that you send out some sort of a mass email or something to let us know when it gets updated. I will, yeah, it'll be, it'll be listed on the IONS website. Wonderful. And thank you so much for being in uh, my life and all the other wonderful uh, people that you've touched. And please give my regards to Susie and thank you so much for being here today, Dean. My pleasure. Okay, have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to a small, medium at large podcast. Remember, like us, subscribe to us. If you have comments, please send them to our email. All the information will be on our site. We're at a small, medium at large, a podcast at gmail.com. It's been a wonderful time being with you here today. I'm looking forward to all the other new guests that we have coming up. I'm excited to share my living room and your living room. And I hope you enjoy the flowers from the garden and have a very wonderful day. Mwah. See you soon. Until the next time. Bye.